Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 136 for May 20th, 2008. Listener feedback number 37. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for security. Now we're going to talk about security for the next hour or so with Steve Gibson, the man who coined the phrase spyware. He is a, a security wizard. He's written so many great security programs, taken Microsoft to task for security flaws, chief of, chiefly raw sockets in their operating system. And every week we talk about the latest in security. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you once again. Yeah, we're going to do a, a Q&A segment so today. it's only been 136 weeks we've been doing this 136 well you know you're tied with <laughs> twit now cool so twit just has to take a week off and you pull ahead okay <laughs> it's it's we're uh, episode i think we uh, just did 136 of uh, this week in tech so well you're, you're going to be taking a trip i think out of the country oh here, so. you might pull ahead you're right i'm going to australia you're going to pull ahead when i go to australia because you <laughs> unlike those twits you like to record ahead and make sure that we don't miss a week. I don't we think, will not. And, and, we and I'm going to say, uh, as I'm as I'm listening to the as I'm reading the feedback that we that we get from our listeners, which I really so much appreciate. So many of them talk about like this is. I don't want to say it's the high point of their week. I'm sure they have lives outside. <laughs> I would of, hope so. <laughs> outside of security now and podcasting, but it, at least within their podcasting domain, they write and talk about how. You know, they look forward to security now That's every right. week, That's wondering really what's right. going to happen. So right. I loved I loved one. One I uh, I read uh, yesterday when I was preparing the, the, the Q&A for today. Uh, the guy said, you know, the problem I have with security now, I'm thinking, OK, Uh-oh. what's coming? Uh, <laughs> yeah. He says, um, most of the podcasts I listen to are sort of, you know, in the background, jab, 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 jab. And he says, and then sometimes they'll ca- something that they say will catch my interest and I'll back up a little bit and then listen. Right. He says, I can't have <laughs> security now running in the background. Oh, good. Because he says, not only, I see, sometimes I have to listen to it multiple times to, to get everything that, that you know, the, all the content. It's like, well, okay, yeah. That's good. okay with us. That's yep. what the transcripts are for too, of course. Right. They help a lot. You can read along. Yeah. Well, Q&A time coming up. Number 37. But before we do that, anything you'd like to recap or cover from uh, the last few weeks? Uh, Two quickies. Um, First of all, um, uh, Greg, my tech support guy, asked me to mention on the podcast that GRC has not been infected by viruses or Trojans. Well, that's good to know. Isn't that good to know? Just a little public relations uh, <laughs> mention. Uh, apparently, Avast, the AV uh, scanner, has been warning people for the last week that GRC is infected with Trojans and spyware. I don't know if this is the Google Analytics stuff that we talked about or, or what the cause is, but they fixed it. 
So I wanted to let anybody who's been, you know, worried that we got taken over or something, I wanted them to know that an update of their Avast viral signatures uh, no longer reports misreports a false positive that that grc has been compromised That's interesting. i think a lot of antiviruses now probably uh check a website or keep an eye on a website since that seems to be the number one vector for attacks nowadays it absolutely is and it certainly makes sense for them to do that it'd be nice if they weren't false positiving yeah, i mean that's um, happy, you know it's funny because that, that's happened for years in applications we've never had to deal with it as web people <laughs> but now yep. we, i guess yeah, yep. maybe it's seeing the JavaScript for uh, well, analytics. and, and in order know. in order to try to be preemptive, increasingly these AV tools are having to be heuristic. They're having to apply right. sort of basically sort of rules of thumb instead of a, um, you know finding a specific pattern. And unfortunately, well, and, and in fact, some of the tools, some of the freeware that I've created has caused false positives because I've had to do things deliberately that were sort of like the insecure thing I was trying to to fix or deal with. And so there, there was code that I had that was deliberately doing the same thing. Like a perfect example is that the Windows Metafile uh, problem, uh, we were causing some false positives because I was doing Windows Metafile stuff to test for the vulnerability, which other malware could take advantage of and right. so you know it's it's sort of the the nature of of well the well that's the why they often say don't run multiple antiviruses because of course sometimes the signatures from one will seem to be a virus yeah. to the other exactly perfect yeah. example yeah and this, this the, the, the second thing i have un, under the subject of i love our listeners uh <laughs> we do a listener named mark odell sent feedback that i ju- they just cracked me up his subject was this sounds like something Oh, it says it sounds like you could use one of these. And so he quotes me saying on episode 134, which was two weeks ago, where I'm talking about uh, going to get my car serviced. And I have a four little tiny, cute little four gig um, thumb drive on my keychain. And I was talking about how, you know, it's a good thing. I, I felt comfortable that I've got it true crypted because I was handing my keys over and I was just imagining, you know, in general keys are, you know, a problem. You don't want to, you know, give them to your valet if you can avoid it because, you know, your your car registration is in the glove compartment. They can figure out where you live. If they wanted to, you know, duplicate your key, it's, you know, a, a way in. Um, and so I was thinking, but, you know, still the just how tantalizing a little thumb drive would be for someone um, anyway, so that's, he, a, that's a whole new thing when nobody's probably thought about. But if you have a thumb drive on, or a uh, a dongle on your keychain, there's a security problem with handing it over. Oh, absolutely! I never thought about that. Very good point. I used to. I have my uh, Sandisk on there. So yes, exactly. So he quotes me saying this, and then and this is what I love. He gives me a link to a Google search for the query detachable keyring. <laughs> That's the new, by the way, that's, that's the new snotty reply email. You just attach a Google search to the uh, response. Uh, yeah. Hey, I got what an idea a, for you. Look this up. Yeah, what, a, what a concept. Who ever heard of such a thing? A detachable key ring where I could have two, two parts and I could just remove wow. my, 
my actually it'd be handy not to have my keys dangling from my laptop when I'm when I've plugged this thing Good into my into my computer too. So you know it's not a bad idea. I'm gonna to Google that, that myself. I need yeah. I, I need that too. <laughs> Lord knows how many hits you get. I didn't even click the link because I but I did I did get a big kick out. That's of That's a very so. funny response. That's great. So I appreciate that, uh, Mark, and I just wanted to let you know. Good. Very good. Um, anything else before we get to our? Um... Well, I do have a, a, a Spinrite story that was so well written that and pretty funny, actually. Uh, this is from a, a, an owner, uh, Westcott Hyde. Uh, okay. And he says, hey, Stephen Leo, sorry this is long, but you have to read this exclamation point first. <laughs> Thanks. I just had to let you know that I finally caught up to you. That is, it took six months and a day. And I have finally heard all the Security Now episodes, some of them six or seven times, including last week's Iron Key. Whew, I did it. Where is my Security Now degree? Yeah, you need a button or something. I survived Security Now. (laughs) He says, now for Spinrite, a quick tale. I heard you mention a a record for Spinrite being a three-month recovery, but the record's anecdote was missing. Here is mine, since I have a similar record. An IT buddy came to me asking if I knew anything about recovering hard drives. I had already purchased a copy of Spinrite sometime before this request, which meant I knew a little more than he did, I suppose, but not much. I had purchased it using the, quote, just in case I need it, unquote, rationale, and to support the Gibson team. Thank you. Well, I hesitated accepting this mission, knowing that this is a breach of etiquette, since Spinrite was purchased for me by me. But I acquiesced and told him I would help him out if he could convince his company in the meantime to buy a copy of Spinrite in the spirit of good intentions, not knowing it would take so long to achieve results. Read on. Long and short of it, this drive had extremely valuable CRM, customer relations data, that was running on a platform that was running on VMware, and the files were buried in VMware's structure. Not an easy prospect. No backup snapshot or other backup of any kind for that matter. Spinrite gave the red screen of death warning notice that the drive was about to imminently fail and to recover data before running Spinrite. That's actually something that Spinrite does uh, if it, it does an initial check of the smart subsystem. And if, if smart is already saying, oh, you know, this is about to die, Spinrite will bring up a, a red screen and say, okay, now look, uh, we'll go with this for you. But the drive is already saying it's about belly up. So maybe you should pull off whatever you can before going for hopefully, you know, complete recovery with Spinrite because Spinrite has been known, you know, to kill a drive if it's already right on the edge. Spinrite in just in doing its data recovery, just regular reads and writes to the drive, you know, can push it over the line. Just so the, just the activity. It, it, and it's con- and Spinrite is constantly checking the smart data and will stop if the drive says, "Oh, wait a minute, I don't know how much more time I've got here." Right. right. So anyway, but apparently due to the fact that these this was in a system buried in a file system buried in a VMware image that was virtually unrecoverable, there's nothing they could do, and they had to have this data. So he says, well, the drive, even though it was surge protected until the cows came home, was a victim of a lightning strike near the building, what? or so I was told. 
Wow. So struck, struck by lightning. Wow. So I, so I figured, what the heck? It is beyond the RSOD anyway. Let's see what we can get. I only needed the precious CRM data. So a couple of days, so a couple of days go by with Spinrite running. I check, nope, it won't boot, and no file structure can yet be seen on another Linux Fedora box by simply mounting the original Fedora Core 6 drive. Spinrite keeps going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny with, quote, unrecovered red sector after unrecovered oh, red sector error. The first six weeks go by. I, now, I can't believe he I just could, leaves it running. This is what cracks me up. Now I could see the file structure, but could still not get any data. Spinrite wasn't done, however. I was just impatient to get the data. Three months later, the drive is still spinning. It, it, is, it is simply hopeless, I thought. But there was no failure of the actuator or the drive spindle. It never overheated. And Spinrite was still cranking away. By this time, I learned to tune out the drone of the drive spinning in the background as just something my subconscious learned to accept, and not as a reminder to me that valuable data and that uh, valuable data was actively being recovered. Amazing. I really, I really thought that the software, parents, which I had never had the occasion to use before, was just hype. Ha. After multiple intermittent weekly checks, three plus months into the process, I gave it one last whirl to see if I could perhaps retrieve some data. Perens, Spinrite still hadn't completed, but I needed to give my power bill a break. Enough was enough. A vast, not Spinrite hype, but reality. Bingo, the entire file structure not only finally appeared, but a fraction of the files were now fully accessible. The CRM data was there and valid. It was quickly backed up, pressed and plattered on a CD-ROM wow. and, and on other more reliable retrievable media. Wow. Light, lightning plus good drive gone bad plus spin write plus time equals good dead or good deed done for the year. Amazing. What a cool what a cool project. Thanks. Then he says, the IT guy who solicited me has since left the company. <laughs> a folly of the time frame, I suppose. But please know that I give Spinrite a sales pitch even when talking about things like Kool-Aid or Starbucks to try to make up for the grief I carry knowing I used it on someone else's drive. However, I know it has resulted in an extra couple of sales for you just telling the story to my and to my other IT friends. Again, thanks for Spinrite. Thanks for my Gibson degree in security, and thanks for your dedication to producing the show. That's pretty amazing. How, so how long did it run? Uh, three plus months, he says. It sounds like about maybe three to four months. Is it, so it's okay to stop it uh, periodically and see what it's done and then continue it on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you, you stop it. It gives you a percentage completion cur accurate to four degrees or four decimal digits worth so that you're able to resume at that point. It used to be in the old days we would write what I call the little fingerprint file on the root of the drive. But since we're now able to run on unknown drives in unknown file systems, right, right. and since I'm unwilling to write in that first uh, unused track of the drive, we know what happens when you do right, that. Right. You, you mess up. You things know, like you shouldn't write to the drive at all. I think. Nope. So yeah, we do yeah. no writing to the drive at all. But so I, I give you a, a where we were 
accurate to four decimal points so that you're able to go back and resume spin right from that point. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you can stop it and see if it gets better. And, yeah, I don't know if you know that D- Dvorak is currently running spin right. No, I didn't know that. We got a whole bunch of information from people saying that he was complaining in some venue of his about like the, the family's main machine had gone down. And when I finally got myself back into email, remember that uh, I crashed my Windows 2000 box last Thursday. So it was over the weekend. I think it was Sunday that I finally got uh, email up and going again. And I found John had tried to contact me through every channel known. People <laughs> he didn't go forward- through me. I think I could have reached you right away. <laughs> anyway, so he said, hey, can you hook me up with a copy of Spinrun? I want to see if, if my family's main gaming machine can be brought back to life. I said, yeah, of course. So I, uh, I, uh, it'll be interesting to see how, what kind of success he finds. Yeah. Yeah, it just depends. You know, I uh, I have a, a RAID array. In fact, we're recording on it right now that when I boot up, it says errors found on the second disk in the array. Oops. It still seems to work. So I ran Spinrite on it and, and it recovered. There was nothing wrong with it, according to Spinrite. Okay. So yep. I don't know what that means at this point. Uh, and it's still working. So, and of course, I record three different versions of the show. So it's not like we're running a great risk. But I think probably right. I should rebuild the array, I think. Sounds like maybe um, there is uh, oftentimes um, some some technology in the RAID controllers where they'll go through and do some sort of a scrub of the array, uh, typically at, at the expense of your data. It's right. not a non-destructive process, which, right. which Spinrite is, but still it's probably something that, you know, is worth – or Leo, you know, just get rid of the drive. Swap, swap a new enough, drive. cheap enough, huh? <laughs> I probably yeah. could, yeah. Uh, okay. Let's get to, oh, before we do our questions, I do want to mention Audible, audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, they're our sponsor. We really are glad to have them aboard. They sponsor all the TwitNetcasts now. I think, I don't, I don't know if there's any of them that, uh, well, the Daily Gizwiz only because it's so short, but everything else they're on. And, and we love them and they love us. Audible is a natural for people who listen to podcasts because it's books that you listen to the same way. Audible Plays on almost all players. You should check their device center to make sure it'll play on yours, but you can also burn it to CD and, of course, play it on your computer. And I'll tell you, there are there are so many titles, tens of thousands of books out there. I don't know if you watch the uh, John Adams show on HBO, but uh, right now they're doing uh, uh, the bio of uh, John Adams um, with Paul Giamatti and Laura Linney. And uh, I, I just I, I haven't seen it yet, but I have them on, uh, you know, recorded. So I'll be watching them soon. If you if you want to kind of back it up. With the book it's based on, and I highly recommend it, David McCullough's John Adams is one of the best books I've ever listened to on Audible. They have it both abridged and unabridged, and it's kind of a tough choice. The abridged version is read by McCullough, who, of course, is a narrator you've heard on many documentaries. I mean, he, even though he's a famous and great historian, the his narration of it is fantastic. Um, the uh, unabridged version, uh, let me see who reads that. Actually, I think Edward Herman reads the abridged version, so maybe I'm wrong. I thought I... I thought I listened to it read by uh, David McCullough. It's just a great book. I listened to the abridged version and uh, went out and got the whole book. And now they have the unabridged version. Highly recommended. On sale right now at Audible for twenty nine ninety five. But I'll tell you what. Oh, Nelson Runger. He's a great reader. He's a great reader. I'll tell you what. You can get it for free. All you got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you're not yet an Audible member, sign up. Get a credit toward a free book. And this would be an excellent choice. John Adams, if you're watching the show, listen to the book that inspired it. It is, uh, it is our gift to you from Audible and uh, the great folks there. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com 
And our special URL is audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of all of the Twitch shows, especially Security Now. It's without their support, there would be no show. <laughs> I have 12 fantastic questions for you. Are you ready? From our fantastic listeners. Absolutely. Yep. Starting with Post Diction in Chicago. He's losing his memory. Uh-oh. Hi, Stephen Leo. Love the show. Try to listen every week. Recently, an older laptop, a P3850 with 384 megs of RAM. Oh, that is older. Had some uh, memory die, and now I'm down to 128 megs of RAM. He says he was running XP on the machine. I don't even know how he did it with 384, but of course it runs too slowly now with 128. He says, I tried dual booting with Windows 2000. Windows 2000 runs great. I was wondering if Steve could briefly go through how he sets up and locks down Windows 2000 on his laptop so I could feel secure taking this machine into the wild. That's kind of a problem because it's no longer being supported by Microsoft, right, Steve? Um, well, yes. First, I wanted to clarify that it's I all my laptops being newer are now using XP, and I'm comfortable. Newer, not new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm, are you running Vista anywhere yet? No, <laughs> of no. course not. What you know? I think I've got it in some VM somewhere. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. no, I do have it on one machine. I it's like I installed. It's like, uh, okay. You know, and if I ever, I'll have to like check my software on it. And I guess at some point I'll need to be doing screenshots for the website. It's like, okay, this is what the thing looks right. like because people are, is, are we over 50% adoption? You know, what percentage of. They sold 100 million window? copies. Uh, I'm sorry, 150 million copies um, last year in 2007. Okay. But, you but can't that's only half back. of all of new machines sold. So, and, you can't, and you can't give them back. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I think it's I think it's well less than half, but I, I, I actually haven't seen statistics. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. It's we haven't gone all the way there now. No, so I'm, what's I'm, your primary OS? Is it still Windows 2000 or is it XP now? No, no, it's XP now. In fact, I, as I mentioned, I did something dumb last week on Thursday. I I killed my Windows 2000 server workstation that I'd been using probably for about a decade uh, I was having problems with the IIS web server in it, which I use for testing all my stuff before I put it up on the public server. And I uninstalled it and reinstalled it under Microsoft's online advice. And it just <laughs> brought the house down. It yeah. was just, oh, goodness. Now, I didn't lose any data. Everything's backed up. I've got my registry and all that. And I've been, you know, I've talked about my quad core uh, monster machine that I've been sort of like wanting to get, over, you know, get set up, but who wants to take the time? It's always something more important I have to do. So anyway, this finally, well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And now I'm sitting in front of a barely configured new Windows XP system uh, that I'm excited about. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a couple of weeks from now, once I've got everything back in and my development environment set up and tuned and customized, I'll be really happy. I did... I mean, I'm I'm taking it slowly because I want to really nail, you know, just like bolt this thing down in terms of just how it's running. For example, I've got every unnecessary process stopped so that when it boots, it uses 131 megs of RAM. So which is very lightweight for Windows XP. So, you know, most times you'll see like maybe three, four hundred um, megs in use. This is 131. So that's kind of impressive. So anyway, I uh, uh, on my I wanted to I wanted to respond to this this listener post diction to mention that I'm not using 2K on a laptop 
And I, so I'm using XP. What makes me comfortable with XP is its built-in firewall. Win2K does not have one, and that is the one thing you absolutely want to add to any machine that you're, you know, a portable machine that you're going to take around and plug into things. You, you absolutely can't have it exposed without some sort of inbound blocking capability. From my standpoint, outbound blocking that allows you to you know, manage individual apps Eh, that's much less important. What's critical is inbound blocking. Now, one thing you could do would be to take one of these little tiny mini travel routers and always run the the Win2K machine behind the little travel router, which is going to get, as we know, routers make really good hardware firewalls. So that would provide you with with good protection, but that's probably unnecessary. I would say just choose any, you know, well-regarded current personal firewall, um, put it in there and make sure it's running. Um, and that's really the only thing you have to do to, to protect yourself when you're out roaming around is just make sure you've, you're not allowing unsolicited incoming traffic. How do you address the issue of no patches? Oh, I mean like in the future? Well, well they're not patching Windows 2000, right? Oh, no, they have been. I've been getting updates uh, oh, <laughs> until last Thursday. Stopped. I thought they stopped. No, it's, uh, I think they had to extend it. Uh, or no, I think it's maybe it's not. Maybe it's what is it? Security? Or I guess I should know this. Security I only. I, I'm sure. I, I haven't worried about it because I've been getting patches constantly. Every okay. you know, every time I do Windows update, it says, "Oh, here's some new stuff for you." It's like, okay, fine. So um, as long as it's being patched now, when they do end of life, it I could have sworn they'd done that already. But when they stop patching it, um, then is it too dangerous to use? Well, I, I, one of the things that happens is you begin the, the the target of opportunity begins maturing and moving. I've got people true. Run, running yeah. on Windows ninety eight me that have never. I mean, these are not computer savvy people. They only need to do email and browse the web. And they've never gotten infected because all of the new exploits are against the new technology. They're against XP and Vista. Nothing, I mean, it's, it's sort of like your your genetics are no longer compatible. So, you know, nothing infects Windows 98 anymore. No one's doing things to infect that old funky platform. So it's become safe. It's sort of like a Mac or Linux. It's just no longer a big target, even though it is it is technically Windows. I'm looking at the Microsoft site. They say they will continue to offer security updates through the life of Windows 2000, which means through 2010. So I think they do, they do a 10-year life cycle on all their OSs. Okay. So you got another year or two. It's going to be really inter- interesting to see what happens with XP because the, uh, apparently they've had, to, they've had to agree to extend XP's life or something or other. Well, here's the deal. They, they, they were going to st- die. Yeah, they were going to stop selling it at the beginning of the year. And somebody protests. They now say June 30th. They'll stop selling it. But support goes on for a while. Okay. Uh, you know, the, t- typically they say what they call mainstream support for five years, extended support for five years after that. And then security updates go on for the entire tenure. And if they would just make it right, they wouldn't have this wouldn't be such a problem. Well, yeah, but there's always going to be holes, right? I mean, even if it's well, and, perfect. And, and notice also, Leo, I mean, here, the fact that we're having this discussion demonstrates that the reality of an unsupported OS 
moves people forward. You know, Microsoft is desperate to get everyone over to Vista. I mean, I don't blame them. It's a pain to like be supporting three OSs at two two thousand XP and Vista. They don't in all the different flavors. They don't want to be doing that. So they really I mean not only economically, but just in terms of the 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 burden for them. They really want people to get off of Windows two thousand. At least get up, but at least get up to XP. There's still people running NT four out there, and it isn't getting patched. Yeah, uh, and it works. It works, and I understand why those people don't want to upgrade. They say, look, it's doing what it needs to do, but it's not being patched. So I don't, you know. And if I'm a hacker, I figure, hey, what better machine than a machine that is completely neglected to the point that it's still running NT4? Well, yeah. Now, okay, um, It, for example, I would guess that those NT4 boxes are servers. They're NT4 server. I don't imagine anyone's walking around with NT right. oh, on I'm a sure laptop. they are, yeah. And, and so in a server environment, it's... You know, they there were some horrible problems with NT's IIS in the beginning. Some all kinds of of URL exploits. Um, so I imagine that you know those have been nailed down, and now it. I mean, it's probably bulletproof unless they unless they add something to it that causes a problem. Point, but yeah. again, it's it's stable and bulletproof. At some point, it's like, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, after ten years, you'd figure everything that's going to be found is found. Yeah, TJ uh, <laughs> Schromer in Houston, Texas, wants, wants to know a little bit more about the security of web forms. He says, when I type HTTPS uh, for, let's say, Discover or DiscoverCard.com, it always ends up back to HTTP colon. No S. The web desk tells me when I click the login button, it changes to a secure connection and then transfers my login information safely. Is that right? Or are they blowing smoke up my cautious risk management? Is my login information safe? If it's loaded into an unsecured page, is it supposedly changed to secure when I press login? I think we talked about this once before, as a matter of fact, because I was concerned, too. Right. We have talked about it, and it does come up from time to time, so I just sort of wanted to revisit yeah. the question. It's First of all, I, I would blame the web designers for this, for the fact that this is causing confusion. A lot of pages do this. Yes. Um, the, the, the idea is that the way a web form works is a because the web was originally designed as a query system that is you had a web browser which browsed and you had servers which served the browsers were not supposed to be sending data back in the other direction it was supposed to be you know it was like a it's sort of a passive document reading model right so in order to sort of shoehorn information flow in the other direction they created a kludge which is they took this query-based model where the where the site is asking for things, and they they added the information you want to send back to the query. So you're essentially what what it is you're asking is actually what you're sending. You know, your your the data that you're sending is part of your question, mm. and the way it's formatted, the server goes. Oh, look at this wacky question. Oh, wait a minute. Here's the question part. And then tacked on the end is all this other stuff, which is which is technically not part of the question. It's a submission to the server. So what that means is that a, a connection is being made to the server, which is first secured. Remember, that's how SSL, Secure Sockets Layer, works. That is the HTTPS. The S stands for SSL or for secure. It creates the connection, 
establishes through some handshaking, which is well-designed, an absolutely secure tunnel using an ephemeral key that will not be used for, for longer than that connection. So it's, it's very secure. And then over that connection goes the query that contains the form data. So it is safe is what this means. The, the, the troublesome thing is that there's no way without viewing the page source and finding the button and finding the URL that is, that is this query for a, for the typical user, the, 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 you know, the armchair surfer who's been listening to security now to figure out whether this button is going to send the data over secure connection. And I don't know if you've looked Leo, but it's, it used to be feasible to do a view source of typical web pages. Now they are so gunked up with, with, yeah. with junk. It's, I mean, it's really hard to figure out what's going on by viewing the source of a page. Well, there, there so, really is a flaw here. None of this was intended to be human readable. I mean, they, nobody, Tim Bernie's lead didn't expect you would be seeing HTTP colon slash slash. Well, what's too bad is that the browsers, which are, do have this supposedly human readable lock and key thing, aren't able to tell either. Right. Now, what the web, uh, I started off by saying that I really blame the web designer. Yes. A, a properly designed p- site where you are submitting data would, would the page with the form would come up secure, even though it doesn't need to be. I mean, the, the, just the, the do point it a little is, earlier just to reassure yes, people. Exactly. Switch to an SSL connection on that page so then you get the happy little green coloration in the if you've got extended certification and ie7 or a browser that supports that to give everybody a nice warm fuzzy feeling that oh good look this is all secure um now the good news is i know that ie and frankly i'm not sure of other browsers but i wouldn't be surprised i'm sure you probably do know leo ie has an option that allows you to to tell IE whether you're allowing it to submit unsecured form data. So IE can be set to alert you when you press the button if that's not going if, if it would not be a secure connection at the time of sending. Because the other thing that is that could happen is if this were if this page were really poorly designed, you could have a secure form display but the button could be that submits the data could be insecure, and you wouldn't know that either. I think all browsers have that. Unfortunately, what happens is the first time you submit information that's not encrypted, you get a little warning box saying you're doing that, and then a checkbox that says yeah. it's an opt-in checkbox that says if you'd like me to warn you about this in future, check this box. But the default behavior is not to. So I would go and you can do this. I know in Firefox, certainly you can go into the security settings and uh, and uh, under the warning messages, make sure you check the box. that says, warn me when I submit information that's not encrypted. Now, you're going to see that all the time. That's the problem. You're going to see it in a lot of pages where you're submitting form information. But at least you'll have a warning if you're trying to do uh, something uh, on, a, on a page where you're giving something you want to protect. Right. That's the real. I think that's why they default to off is you would see this all the time. Right. Anytime you submit a form. 
Because most of the time, it, it is insecure and it doesn't need to be secure. It's only when you're it's, logging in and stuff. It's just not very well designed, all of you this know, stuff. You know, this was all designed before security was an issue. And we're still yep. st- stuck with a lot of this legacy. Jeffrey in Columbia, Maryland is weighing TrueCrypt versus IronKey. I think we, we, we've confused everybody by talking about three, actually, really good technologies. Um, uh, CompuSec, TrueCrypt, and then IronKey, in, almost in a row. Steve, after episode 135, I've been fighting with myself over what I should use now. TrueCrypt on a USB key or Iron Key? To me, as an everyday computer user who's security-minded, they both suffer from the same problem. They're both worthless, in a sense, if your client computer's already been compromised. We did talk about that. And is TrueCrypt really that much, quote, less secure because it's software-based and someone can attempt a brute force password crack on it? Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but can't you also use TrueCrypt's key files as part of your keyring material to make up for this? To, to my way of thinking, you still can't beat TrueCrypt. It's free. Personally, I don't want to trust another company as far as their servers and such for the storing of my password, regardless of how secure they claim to be or how much they say they can be trusted as being on your side and in your best interest. That's the point I always make about uh, open source versus closed source. In my opinion, this is one of those trust no one situations you talk about. Finally, regardless of the situation, it would take a state-sponsored enemy to even attempt like the NSA, to even attempt to break either of these items to begin with. So what really is the scare in the end of the everyday user? Just curious, look forward to your thoughts. These are great. This is the kind of thing actually I'd like to ask you, Steve. I think Jeffrey's right on there. Okay. If if price is not an object, and if Iron Key were as tiny and cute as the little Kingston 4-gig <laughs> thumb drive I have on my keychain, I would use Iron Key. I think, um, but it's huge. I mean, it. I'm not having that monster thing on my key keychain. I mean, I many users asked about Iron Key. We completely covered it last week. I'm really glad we have Dave. On, we had Dave on. I think it was a, a tremendous, and we had a, actually I got a lot of nice feedback compliments about how much they liked the idea of us of us having guest people on, and and Dave in particular, um, I th- which I thought you know was was neat. I agree. It was really fun to have him. But I'm using TrueCrypt on my little four gig dongle, which my car mechanics are free to do anything with that they want. Um, I mean, that's my choice. I, I so I, I guess it's you know is is it the case that TrueCrypt is safe enough? Absolutely. I mean, it is. It is. You know, do you need a hardware encryption on the device? No. Um, in fact, um, even USB dongles can be used as um, as third-party, I mean, as as multi-factor authentication. So you could do two-factor authentication. So I mean, there there are ways to do this without the Iron Key solution. I I, I think for the for the really high-end, um, extreme secure, uh, you know, maybe corporate user or something, maybe Iron Key makes sense. Um, but I've got to say, TrueCrypt is what I use now. The one interesting danger about TrueCrypt, which which IronKey doesn't have is that you can you can pull a bad guy. Say that my you know the car mechanic I I, heard, I turned my keys over to him and I didn't have the little key release gizmo that has been suggested. Um, he could copy the encrypted partition that is just a file from mine from my system to his and give me back my keys and my car. And away I drive. Well, now he's got an encrypted, my encrypted file forever. 
He can have it as long as he wants. There's no way the TrueCrypt prevents him from copying it off. Um, there was the comment made about key files. That is, Jeffrey mentioned that uh, you're, you're able with, with TrueCrypt, you're able to use a file in addition to your passphrase. But again, copy the entire the, the, the contents of the entire four gigs, and you'll have whatever key files it might have been using too. So, you know, it's it makes me a little uncomfortable that he could have this encrypted blob on his machine to do with whatever he wants. Certainly, Iron Key absolutely prevents that. You are you're not able to get past to get past it in order to get to your data without authenticating yourself. TrueCrypt does allow you to pull the data off, and then you know, uh, use state-sponsored uh, enemies to uh, to attack it. But again, uh, TrueCrypt is, I think, just every bit as safe as anyone needs. Okay. Excellent answer. And it is free. That has an advantage. And you can put it on cute little thumb drives. <laughs> Which I do. And yeah. the thumb drives cost, you know, 20 bucks you know, instead I, of... I like, I have, a, I have a Corsair, I buy a Corsair 16 gig drives because we still use SneakerNet here in the office. And it's great for transferring files to a Dane so he can edit them. And right. it comes with TrueCrypt on it, TrueCrypt 4, but at least it comes with TrueCrypt on it. I think that's kind of a neat thing that Corsair is doing. They're just kind of bundling it along just to, I guess, you know, in some way, just letting people know you could do this. Yep. Tyler playing with Colinux, which I'm not familiar with, somewhere in Arizona, writes, Steve, I found something relatively new I think might pique the interest of a low-level hacker like you, especially considering your interest in virtualization. You mentioned earlier about running Linux BSD in a VM under Windows to act as a firewall. I've tried all the VM emulators on the market, and I've always been disappointed. They all feel heavy in one way or another, either performance or size, impact on the host system. I've just always felt like technology had a long way to go yet. Then along comes Cooperative Linux, or CoLinux for short. This isn't a better VM implementation, just a whole new approach. With CoLinux, both kernels run in ring zero. The two kernels are modified via a driver to run as coroutines of each other. Neither's absolutely in charge. In the interest of sanity, the Linux kernel only sees hardware through a virtualization layer. Otherwise, if you put in a USB key, which, which OS would take it? But other than that, the systems run as normal. It's called virtualization because that's what it's most similar to, but nothing is actually being virtualized. Both OSs are running on bare metal. This creates a significant advantage. There's literally no perceptible overhead. It doesn't use any processor time or memory that's not directly accounted for by some application on the guest system. Not only does the guest OS run at 100% normal speed, there's no additional cost to the host system either. There's no VM engine, so all the memory and CPU cost of the guest OS is accounted for by the guest's applications. With Fedora under Colinus running in the background, I could still even play high-end games with no slowdown whatsoever. Try that with VMware. Colinux can even be run as a Windows service, making it easier to use as a personal Linux firewall. The downside... Oh, oh well, I knew there would be one... <laughs> Is security and stability. Oh, well, great. Okay. Jeez. There's no separation between the two operating systems, so a kernel-level exploit under Linux could jump the gap and compromise Windows. Similarly, a kernel panic under Linux might cause a blue screen under Windows. Also, CoLinux is very much still in development. The whole architecture is still being built and rebuilt as they work toward an optimal solution. However, it already beats the pants off everything else out there. I finally found a VM environment I can literally live with as part of my day-to-day -day computer usage is concerned. I highly recommend you have a look at it. 
Well, this is a very, very interesting approach. Um, I, I wanted to mention it because I feel the same way that Tyler does about you know the sort of like the persistent use of of, of a VM. Yeah, as we've talked about, you need to commit a chunk of your host system memory to a VM. Right. A, a that's the thing that gets used up first. It's one reason even to have a swap file. Um, even if you've got, for example, uh, three or four gigs of memory, a swap file will allow, you know, multiple VMs to swap out to, to disk, um, because VMs are very memory, um, hungry and, and resource intensive. What the Colinux guys have done, I think is really interesting. It's the reason I wanted to bring this to the attention of our listeners is despite the fact that you lose some of this notion of isolation, Increasingly, our listeners are using multiple OSs. That is, you know, they may be Windows people, but they want to play with Linux, or they want, they're, they're, or they're Linux people who want to have Windows around, but not in the way. Um, essentially, this allows li the Linux kernel to run as a device driver, a, 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 as a service, essentially in Windows and not be in the way it's able to to give and take memory to and from windows as it needs it so that if you run a, a linux app the linux app runs in windows memory rather than in like a separate sequestered vmware or virtual machine of some kind memory so i mean it's it's really practical from the standpoint of of wouldn't it be nice to run to be able to have Linux around if your main platform was Windows, but you wanted to like have access to Linux stuff? So it's an interesting approach. If you just put Colinux, C O L I N U X, into Google, it'll take you right to their site. Um, and it is new. It took about a month for them to bring it up the first time. So it's it's a it's an interesting sort of lightweight approach to two OSs running side by side in the same box. And I'll, I'll absolutely bet there are that our listeners will find some use for it. It's an interesting, yeah, it's a really interesting idea. Not, but you wouldn't do it for security and which is why a lot of people are doing this. Yeah. Well, I would say it's one of the, maybe it's half the reason people are doing it. So, I mean, security is one thing, but often there are, there are times where you just want to have a different yeah, OS, OS around. Yeah. For yeah, yeah. you know any of a number of reasons. Well, actually, that's true. When I run uh, um, VMware or Parallels on my Mac, it's not. It's just so I can run Windows. It's not so I can be secure. Obviously, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tim Buski, listening from Singapore, was wondering about relocated sectors. Hi, Steve. In episode one thirty four, you briefly described how modern hard drives will automatically relocate sectors that are deemed bad while retaining the original sector number. If that occurs with any frequency, won't it tend to erode the benefit of utilities like Perfect Disk and other defrag utilities? Since sequentially numbered sectors won't necessarily be located sequentially on the hard drive. Love the podcast. Happy SpinRight user. Devoted Security Now listener, Tim. Well, Tim is technically correct, um, although the, the relocation strategies of drives differ. Um, one of the interesting things many drives will do is they'll have pools of spares scattered around the drive. Like some of them have them at the end of every cylinder of the drive, although cylinders now have sort of lost their meaning because drives are re regarded as a linear array of sectors as opposed to, you know, cylinder head and sector, the old 3D approach 
of accessing a given sector sort of by its coordinates on the physically on the disk. But but what drives will do is they will they will slide sectors down so that if a given bad sector is found somewhere, what happens is if given that its data can be recovered, which is what the drive requires, Spinrite, of course, using Spinrite gives you much more power over that process. But but given that the, the sector can be recovered, it will be essentially the the at the end of this run of sectors, however long it is, whether it's a track or a cylinder or some arbitrary uh, span, at the end of the run of sectors is the empty sector pool. The drive literally slides all the sectors down by one, reducing the size of the pool by one, and essentially keeping them linear, but skipping over the bad one. So, so if you imagine like a hundred sectors and the tenth one is bad, well, what happens is those 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 um, uh, I'm trying to get my math right. The eighty nine sectors following the 10th one, they're slid down. All of them are slid down by one, thus encroaching into the spare buffer at the end of that run and essentially keeping them all linear. So the drive's performance is impacted only marginally and that it has to just sort of ignore one sector and then it keeps on going in a linear fashion. So it's, it's very cool. I think this is the part where people rewind a couple of times to understand. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. I'll let you do that, folks, and uh, we'll stay here until you come back. Number six, Sean White in Osaka, Japan, doesn't want to write too often. <laughs> it's okay, Sean, really. Dear Steve, to, during last week's interview with Iron Keys Dave, great episode, by the way, he briefly touched on the types of flash memory he talked to. He did. It was, I thought, very interesting. I'd never heard this. SLC and MLC. Talking about keeping data safe when using portable applications, say, for instance, the PortableApps.com suite, where our users, our university, uses Firefox, OpenOffice, Audacity, GIMP, NVU. Have you any idea how you would estimate the number of write cycles that a flash drive will be subjected to? As we move more and more towards portable computing or cloud computing, will MLC really be enough? Should we be in SLC? Thanks so much for the greatest source of tech info on the net. So I gather that at where Sean's going to school in Osaka, uh, they're using a thumb drive and just moving around from computer to computer with all of their stuff on it, OpenOffice and Firefox and um, all of their programs that they use. Uh, and he wants, to, he wants to understand how the number of write cycles will impact that and whether SLC is better or MLC is better than, or SLC is better than MLC for that. Let's do a little bit of, of de-acronymizing yes, here. Yes, please, yeah. Um, SLC stands for single level cell. MLC stands for multi-level cell. And MLC technology was developed, that is multi-level cell technology, was developed to increase the density of data that can be stored um, in this flash ROM or RAM or, or PROM or, you know, Lord knows what you want to call it. But what's very cool about multi-level cell, that is MLC, is it stores two bits per cell the way it does it is by storing essentially four voltage levels in the cell you have all off then you have one quarter two quarters 
And well, I mean, it's like all, all off, sorry, sorry, all off one third, two thirds and three thirds. So you literally, you're not it, the, the, you know, we're all used to thinking in terms of binary, but these are, what does that be? Quaternary uh, technology where they, they realized, wait a minute, we've got enough resolution in our ability to write and read that we don't have to just store ones and zeros. We can actually store a zero, a one, two, three, or a zero, a one, two, or three, and and that gives you two bits of data. So that's MLC stands for multi-level cell. The, there are a couple problems with MLC, which 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 um, uh, our listener apparently understands because he was sort of talking about SLC versus MLC. First of all, MLC has about a a factor of ten fewer write cycles that it's able to handle. It can do 10,000 writes before it begins to have problems, whereas SLC, single-level cell technology, can do 100,000. And that's primarily just due to the fact that you're only storing a zero or a one, and so as the cell's ability to store degrades, it's easier to tell the zeros and the ones because they're, like, you know, they're absolute, whereas... With multi-level technology, you're storing a zero, one, two, or three. That is four different voltage levels, essentially, or charge levels in each cell. And so as that begins to degrade, you can start having problems. So the multi-level cells have about one-tenth the right cycles. They do have a higher error rate, although all of these technologies use ECC, error correction code, in order to to essentially ignore and deal with those kinds of, of bit errors. Now, all of this, any high-end um, memory, as Dave was talking about, and Iron Key is one of these, will use what's called wear leveling. Because of the sensitivity to the number of write cycles, The when you are writing to a given area, there is a sort of a, a mapping layer that is between you and the actual physical ROM, so that when you're writing to it, you're you're actually writing to a different zone of the memory, even if it, if logically you're writing to the same spot. For example, in a hard drive, when you write to a given sector, you're actually writing to that sector, except in the case we talked about before, where there may have been some sparing going on, where the, a sector was swapped out. But in the general case, you're you're physically writing given that all other things are okay, to the same location over and over and over and over and over. Not so with our solid-state memory, our non-volatile solid-state flash memory. In in that case, with wear leveling, they're deliberately sort of spreading the rights out across the physical surface. The bottom line is, if you have an, an SLC technology that's good for 100,000 rights, and you imagine, I mean, you're, you're literally able to, to calculate how much you're writing compared to how large the memory is and how long it would take for you to write the entire thing 100,000 times. So if you take four, a, a four gigabyte memory, which is high quality so that it's got wear leveling built in, um, and you multiply that four gigs by a hundred thousand, so let's see. By a by a thousand, four gigs becomes four terabytes, and by a hundred, so that becomes four hundred terabytes. That is to say, you can write 
400 terabytes of data wow. in, into that four gig memory before you reach a where leveled 100,000 writes per region. So then compute how much data you're writing. I mean, the fact is sort of, I mean, it's, it makes people a little jittery to think, you know, wait a minute, this is, I, I could burn this out. I could wear this out. Well, yes, but when you really do the math four, it'll take 400 terabytes of data written to it before you reach that point. So most use is far, far less than that. Certainly on a thumb drive, although when you start talking about SSD hard drives, um, then you start might be coming up against that. Oh, and yes, you don't want to, for example, have very little main memory and use SSD as your swap file. As right. we found out from right. you know the early experiments that Mark Thompson did, uh, you know those can get burned out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question, Sean. I'm glad you asked that. Jim Phelan is also uh, backing up his TrueCrypt volumes. He's doing it with Jungle Disk. We talked about the issue of timestamping a couple of episodes ago. Steve, thanks for the errata tip about the TrueCrypt switch, a little switch in the program that forces the software to update the timestamp on a TrueCrypt container. I was also having trouble getting Jungle Disk to back up my encrypted files. After hearing your tip on security now, I checked my TrueCrypt preferences and found there is a way to set this option in the TrueCrypt GUI. Go to Settings, Preferences, uncheck the box that says preserve timestamps in all file containers. It gives you a warning about losing plausible deniability. <laughs> okay, because, you know, they could say, hey, you've been updating this. But once you do that and restart TrueCrypt, every time you dismount a TrueCrypt volume, it updates the timestamp on the encrypted container. Thanks for the best podcast going. Good tip, Tim. Well, Jim. yes, Jim and many other listeners mentioned that this option was in the GUI. So um, I, I wanted to make sure our listeners know, you know, we, we talked about a, a command line option that you could add to the end of the TrueCrypt XE invocation, certainly for the typical user going in and un unchecking preserved timestamps on all file containers is a lot easier to do. Now, one reason you might not want to do that is you, know, you not, might not want to make that change globally, in which case using the command line switch would allow you to do it on a container-by-container -container basis as you are telling TrueCrypt to, TrueCrypt to mount a certain container and, and dismount it. But um, I did like the option, and I just loved, again, you know, I was, I was guessing from hearing that the timestamp was not being updated that those, those TrueCrypt guys were again doing the right thing. They were wanting to, you know, preserve the date stamp from, from at its creation, its original creation date, specifically for the purpose of plausible deniability. So I love the fact that when you uncheck that, it warns you that, well, okay, we'll update timestamps as you wish, but then, you know, someone might say, hey, wait a minute, this has today's date. Mm -hmm. You've been in, you've been mm -hmm. in there today. Mm -hmm. yep. Very interesting. Good tip. True, true crip rocks. Yeah, they're just, they think about everything. They're true paranoids. David O., lurking about in the Bay Area of California, feels that stating only the NSA can do it understates the scope of the threat. And I take responsibility for that. I'm the one, who I think, who says that. Hi, Stephen Lee. I love the show. I like, who, what was our, our previous guy's uh, questioner said uh, something, state-sponsored uh, organizations. Right. right. <laughs> that might be a better way to say it. 
I'm writing to ask that you consider amending something that you have said on more than one occasion. When discussing the topic of writing several passes of pseudo-random noise as a means of obscuring previously written data on disk media, Leo has been understandably skeptical about the true real-world feasibility of such sci-fi data recovery. Stating something along the lines of, I mean, come on, only the NSA has the sort of technology it would be necessary to read disks at this level, right? So I wanted you, uh, you guys and my fellow listeners to know, it ain't so. There are commercial services available that offer this level of data recovery. Okay, I'm going to be very skeptical here. But I'll keep reading. That of truly erase and overwritten disks. I used to work in tech support for a large computer company. And representatives from a data recovery service came in to talk to us once to explain that disks were erased, that were erased or overwritten could have their data recovered by them for forensic purposes. It's not cheap or easy, but it's an available service and anyone can employ them for the price. They discuss the details of how it's done much in the way you explained, <clears throat> using trace levels of residual magnetic charge. So because there are commercial services available, it means that the scope of risk is not just the NSA at the national security level, but is expanded to the scope of, let's say, private investigators with an angry ex-wife, husband, partner, etc., mistrust between bosses and employees, well-heared snoops, and so on. I'm not suggesting that folks should be paranoid or overwrite their data seven times with pseudo-random noise every time they empty the trash. That might be a bit over the top. But I think it would be unjust to your listeners to understate the scope of the risk in a security-related concern on a podcast such as Security Now. If somebody really wants your data and is motivated, a simple erase or even a zero-all is truly not secure enough. And I, I agree with that. I, I wasn't saying that a simple erase was secure enough or a single pass was secure enough. I understand that. But I, I question these so-called commercial enterprises. Well, and we do all agree that 36 passes. is That's too much. <laughs> two, or, two or three would be more than enough. I really think that's the case. Yes. Um, I'm, I, I'd like to know who these commercial services are. You know, I, the reason I, I'm talking uh, uh, not based on my own experience, but on uh, on uh, the testimony of people I trust in this area arena, like Simpson Garfinkel, who did this study and is a very bright guy who said ah, one pass is plenty. Tim O'Malley of Beach Park, Illinois, wants to remain virus free, but pass as many times as you feel necessary. Hi, Steve and Leo, says Tim. The question stems from podcast 129, where Steve makes the comment at the end of the show and not for the first time that neither Steve or Leo use antivirus. Now I know you're not denouncing antivirus or suggesting that people shouldn't employ AV. Before I go any further, I don't work for an antivirus vendor. Still, it begs the question, how do you set up your machine so that you feel safe enough not to have to use antivirus software? I've been listening for a while now and can speculate as to how you have it set up so not to run, but I would rather hear it directly from you. Thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work, Tim. Well, Leo, I would say it's a combination of the way we have our machines set up and more probably than anything else, our behavior. Yeah, it's Um, all about behavior. It really is. Um, You know, I mean, we know I'm a little stricter than you are. Well, I'm much more stricter stricter than you are (laughs) about about, uh, scripting. I just don't like scripting. Um, I'm going to – well, and and so I surf with scripting disabled, which – normally sort of catches me out a little bit. I go, wait a minute, why is this not working? Oh, that's right. I need to trust this website. Then I I add it to my trusted zones in IE and scripting is, is back on the way I have my zones configured and I'm able then to do what I want. But so, you know, that I really like that. But oh, the, the, the second thing is I have never, ever, once ever in my life used Outlook Express 
for or, or Outlook for email because Microsoft has had so many horrible problems with IE's web browsing experience and Outlook and Outlook Express use the web browsing control in the window. So any any problems that that you have with the with, with IE and and scripting your email automatically inherits, which is just the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, who ever thought that scripting was was useful for email? But it's been turned on from the beginning, and we've had all kinds of viral problems as a result of that. Now, that's getting better, but those are things that hurt other people. I've always been using Eudora, and one of the things, one of the options you can check is do not use Windows Viewer in Eudora. So I turn that off, and then I use just a generic text display rather than essentially IE, you know, Windows Viewer for my Eudora. And so, yes, when I look at email, I'm not seeing what looks like a web page. I've looked at other people's email, and I thought, wow, look what I'm missing. On the other hand, I get all the text. I, You know, email is for text. So um, that's really, you know, my two things are be careful about email. And in my case, I turn scripting off. But as you said, Leo, or, or agreed with me, largely it's about behavior. I will not click a link that I get through email. I mean, I just, I am really, really, really reticent. Um, I have a, a hex viewer that I'll use, and I'll look at an attachment in the hex viewer to see if it looks like what it's appear what it appears to be if if i'm you know in if i'm inclined to believe that i've received something but i mean i'm i'm really anxious about attachments in email i i don't treat them casually at all so you know it's just a matter of really being careful i just don't uh, surf the internet with a windows machine ah <laughs> I, I use windows all the time i need to uh, I, i'm using it right now to record the show to edit the show I just don't go on the net with that machine. Uh, that that helps me. Now, on the Mac, obviously, I still have to worry about those kinds of things, and I'm very careful. The good news is that almost everything I run up against is written for Windows. So all the email attachments and everything are all written for Windows. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to have an antivirus in your toolkit to at least scan uh, from time to time just to make sure that you haven't made any mistakes. When, yeah, certainly if, if your system seems to have gone a little funky, you know, then it's like, uh, maybe I ought to, I mean, I've, 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 you know, found myself scanning, d- 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 you know, grabbed the current copy of AVG. Sure. If I think something's wrong, sure. normally <laughs> it's just the fact that the thing's 10 years old is the problem. <laughs> Here's a good one. This will give you a little chill. Sonu Daswani submits a succinct request with the subject to learn password of any ID and asks, quote, please give us how we can learn password cracking, end quote. <laughs> Obviously a devoted listener. <laughs> <laughs> I just love this. How can we learn password cracking, Steve Gibson? Uh, that's not why we're here, so new. <laughs> He's so new. You've got the wrong podcast. You've got the wrong show. We, the, we've uh, talked about it. I mean, peripherally, things like brute force attacks. Well, no, we absolutely talk about what it is that bad guys do to crack your password. And those tables, you have to, those, uh, you know. Uh, rainbow, rainbow tables. tables, yeah. And brute force and, you know, dictionary attacks. I mean, we know we've talked about this a lot, but we're not in the business of teaching how it's done. We're in the business of explaining the technology used. And then from that, we derive the best defenses against 
password cracking. The good news is, for Sonu, there are plenty of sites on the Internet where, and probably even some podcasts, which will help him to learn password cracking, um, but not this one. Yeah. Well, I think if you're uh, following uh, what we're saying closely, you're getting everything you need to know. I mean, it's just a step between what we describe and the implementation. Right. I mean, what we don't do is give you scripts. We don't teach script kiddies. Um, but I think if you're an intelligent person, you could listen to what we're talking about and say, oh, OK, I need this, this and this and pretty much figure it out. Well, yes. For example, you can imagine in the case of, for example, Wi-Fi, which we've covered extensively, all the things we've talked about, somebody who is wearing a gray hat could use. For example, we've talked about how SSID turning off, SSID off doesn't help, how how um, uh, tying uh, using MAC address filtering doesn't help. How I mean, we've talked about all the things that you that you should not do. Well, anybody who's not listening to this podcast or isn't somehow brought themselves up to speed with state of the art security, you know, they're going to fall victim to these things. I mean, and I, I still read today as I'm surfing around. Oh yeah, turn off your SSID beacon. Oh, you know, just use MAC address filtering. That's secure. Okay. Good luck with that. <laughs> Our listeners know better. They know better. David in the United Kingdom is wondering about radio. Steve, I heard you talk about the security of wireless keyboards a few weeks ago, or the insecurity, I should say. That got my attention. I have a Logitech wireless keyboard, but I do not access internet banking through it because of the uncertainty of its security. I'm thinking of getting a new iMac soon and would like the convenience of using their Bluetooth keyboard. However, I'm worried about its wirelessness. My flatmate got malware on his phone last year through Bluetooth. Is it possible that a Bluetooth keyboard could get compromised? For instance, uh, could you get a keylogger in the keyboard? That'd be a bad thing. Well, okay, we're going to do a podcast here before long um, on Bluetooth security. Oh, good. Because there, there yes. seems to be a big debate over how secure it is. Yes, we're going we're gonna to cover it as, as carefully and extensively as we cover, you know, all of the fundamental technology stuff, it may be one of those episodes that people have to listen to a few times. Certainly, they should not be, you know, operating heavy equipment at, at the time that they're listening to our Bluetooth, you know, how Bluetooth security works mm -hmm, episode. Mm -hmm. um, for now, let me say that the one thing you absolutely want to do, and Leo, we, we discovered this when you and I were up talking about Bluetooth um, on the lab with Leo a couple months ago, was uh, you want to turn off discoverability. Yeah. Discoverability is something that that really should just switch itself off. I, I mean, the way if this were designed correctly, you would make a device discoverable for 60 seconds and they would all snap back to non-discoverable because you really only need discoverability during the so-called pairing of two bluetooth devices but what was interesting was we were we were up in um in in Vancouver um recording the lab with Leo and we we turned on a bluetooth sniffer and looked at how many bluetooth devices just there in the studio and it was like 20 yeah every it turned out everybody there the cameraman and the 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 producers and i mean everybody had their bluetooth devices they just left it indiscoverable that's the vulnerability in bluetooth 
So make sure your devices are not left that way. Unfortunately, people turn that on and then they, they, they like, yay, I got connected. And they go off and do their next thing right. and forget to turn that off. Somebody asked me on the radio show if, if Bluetooth encrypt, encryption had been cracked. And it, it uses AES, so I think it's probably pretty good. We'll be talking about I it. I think that's going to be a great subject. I'll stay, stay tuned for that, David. David, oh, before we get to the next and last question. He wants to talk a little bit about OpenDNS, which I'm a big fan of, and I actually am very interested in your response to his question. I do want to mention, of course, Astaro, our great sponsors. ASTARO.com, they're the ultimate in unified threat management, or as sometimes it's called, UTM. A simple little box uh, about the size of a router that does so much more than a router. Of course, it provides a stateful inspection, top-of-the-line everything buzzword compliant firewall. I'm not saying that doesn't do that. It also does um, uh, intrusion detection. Um, You know, it does all the things you'd expect from a secure firewall, but it also does complete filtering. Uh, It does, it offers VPN, including SSL VPN. So IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL. Uh, Let's see what else. I mean, it's just, you know, filter all traffic, including IM and, a peer-to-peer traffic. Uh, you'd get complete antiviruses. There's three of them: two for uh, email and one for the web. See, I don't. One of the reasons I don't run an antivirus on my machines is because I got this protecting me at, at the perimeter, which is a great way to go. It doesn't. Your machine now no longer has to worry about this kind of thing. Same thing with encryption. It does open PGP or SMIME at the box. So encrypt, decrypt, signatures, all done transparently and automatically. This is the kind of talk I think I'm talking about. It's it, Astaro is really great. If you're uh, being pushed off the Cisco PIX platform because PIX is being phased out, Astaro has a deal for you. Call 877, the number 4 Astaro, 877-427-8276. You can arrange for an Astaro uh, preview in your uh, office. And by the way, I'm very pleased to announce, Astaro has just announced this at RSA, the new Astaro web gateway uh, they're going to do a new security line uh, it's the Astaro web gateway provides integrated url filtering malware detection instant messaging and peer-to-peer application control bandwidth optimization so you can completely secure and control web access so it's a you can either be a hardware uh, device just like the Astaro gateway or it can be a virtualized appliance you manage it through a browser-based gui this is a great thing for a small business that doesn't want the full Astaro protection, but wants the web uh, protection as well. Uh, Astaro now just, it's getting better and better. The Astaro web gateway, very affordably, it'll be available in the second quarter of 2008. Uh, join that with the Astaro security gateway. You're talking a great line of products. Get a demo in your office, 877, the number four, Astaro, or visit them on the web at astaro.com slash security now. We thank Astaro for their longtime support of the great Security Now show. They're into security, so are we, Astaro. Uh, let's see, Mr. G. One more question. Are you ready? Yep. I can't believe how fast this went. David Miles of Westminster, Colorado is having second thoughts. You're just having too much fun this time. I am. Yeah. It went fast. <laughs> it, I mean, it always goes fast. But it went really fast. Uh, hi, Steve. I've been using OpenDNS for over a year, as have I. So uh, I'm very curious about your answer to this question. And over the past few weeks, I began noticing that Google has been painfully slow. I haven't noticed that. Then Google started accusing me of having a virus even from my Ubuntu and Fedora systems. 
Actually, I ha- I do get that from time to time, but I don't think it's open DNS. But what you what it says is Google gives you a little pop up that says um, you're behaving as a spyware or virus program would, and that gives you a captcha saying, "Please identify yourself as a human." I I went through a day of getting that a lot, and now it's stopped completely. He says, I finally got tired of the open DNS. Yikes, server not responding on every other access and returned to the Comcast name server. Suddenly, Google's back to normal. No more bogus virus warnings. It seems that open DNS is up to some evil. They're apparently harvesting info from queries for unknown purposes. The Wikipedia article on open DNS has additional info. Since I first heard about open DNS from Security Now, I thought you might want to take a look at this. Have you looked into this? Well, um... I wanted to say a couple things. First of all, I was interested in your experience because I knew that you were an open DNS user. On everything. Um, I use it at home and I use it here. I don't think that the Google warning is related to open DNS. I think that that is something Google has a problem with from time to time. It's happened to me and it's happened to others with and without open DNS. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I can't trace it back to open DNS. I really can't. Yeah, I run my own... Um, DNS server here on on Unix. Um, so so and and it's a, a server that goes out and resolves all my queries. So I'm not using an ISP's DNS servers. I I wanted to mention though that I mean I conceptually I love the idea of like a a, a third party good guy right. DNS service. You know the, we know how dependent. Everything that we do is on DNS. That is, you know, whenever you're looking up a website, unless it's explicitly supplied through an IP address, which is, you know, it can be done, but it's uncommon. A DNS is involved in translating that human readable address, you know, like Amazon.com, Twit.tv, GRC.com, whatever, into its IP. Well, that gives that translator an opportunity to intercede and say, oh, wait a minute, uh, these are bad guys. Um, what do you want to do about this? Or, as, as DNS does, for example, to correct spelling mistakes. Right. If, if you go to, you know, like sourceforge.og instead of org, it says, oh, we know what he means, and it fixes it for you. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a tremendous opportunity for, for DNS to be essentially a filter in a, in a very benign and and non-intrusive way and because dns is often sort of the 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 poor stepchild of isps you know they'll like have a dns server that they've that's that's 30 years old that's been there forever that is you know an underpowered machine because once upon a time dns didn't require much power doesn't have much ram you know my point is that a, an ISP's DNS server can often be very slow, and a, if an ISP's DNS server is slow, it will bottleneck all of their users' access because their users' as- access has to go through that. So it can be the case. It looks like David Miles has an ISP with a with a good performing, um, fast DNS server. But it can be the case that using third-party DNS can be substantially faster, and the experience is, wow, you know, the Internet is faster, yeah. is, you know, is how people describe it. I actually don't use OpenDNS for speed because my, both my Internet service providers, I'm, I'm, one of them is Comcast, are just as fast as, uh, as OpenDNS. So I don't use it for that reason. I use it. It's got phishing filters, which is great. Uh, if you sign up for a free account, you can also use it as a... Um, uh, adult site filter it has actually very good filtering and it's done 
since I put it, the open DNS uh, DNS servers uh, info into the router uh, at home, it's done throughout my house. So uh, unless I enter custom DNS information in my computer, which I do, um, but the kids, you know, they don't, they aren't, they haven't figured out that the router is doing the DNS, <laughs> and so it's getting blocked at the router, and it's really a very effective filtering solution that costs nothing. Um, also, they have Dyn DNS for people who have moving uh, IP addresses. That's very handy. <clears throat> I don't, you know, I've talked to these guys. Uh, you know, I can't say a hundred percent they're benign, but I'm. I have a pretty strong feeling that they're benign. I have a very good feeling about them. Yes, they. Uh, one of the things they do, and this is how they support themselves. If you enter a four hundred four instead of getting the Internet Explorer four hundred four message or a you know a, a you know a non-existent web page message from your browser, you get a non-existent web page message. From OpenDNS, it looks like a Google search page. It has has ads down the side, just as Google does, and it has, which I find very useful, corrections, suggested corrections, and uh, that, frankly, I use that all the time. And when I mistype something, if if it can't do the obvious fix, like the OG to ORG, it'll give you that page. That gives them some revenue because this is a free service. I don't have a problem with that. So I, you know, I I've been recommending OpenDNS. It's a very easy thing to implement. You could either just change the DNS settings on your computer, or do as I do, do it on the router, and then blank the settings in the computer, and uh, from then on you'll be using it instead of your ISPs. I I think it's a good service, and I don't see I don't I haven't seen any evidence that it's tied to the Google those Google warnings. That's that's something that goes wrong with Google every once in a while. Have you yeah. ever seen that? No, actually, I haven't. It's it's it, it's interesting that you say that it believes you're acting like some sort of malware and wants you to prove that you're human. Yeah, I have a, a image on my a blog um, of of it coming up, and it could be you know maybe it is because of uh, something op- something's happening with Open DNS. Maybe I don't see why it would because once the DNS is resolved, Google doesn't know that I've done a different used a different DNS server. Right? How would that impact that? Um, I, you know, it just says you've, they've made too many requests in too short a time. Maybe I just use Google a little more than I ought to. I don't know. Um, or maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a sign I have some spyware on my system. Maybe I should be using that antivirus. I don't know. I'll check it. Yeah. I guess my hope is, you know, that Google ha- has been, you know, uh, changing their behavior as they've grown huge. You know, I guess you know that the the, the their purchase of DoubleClick has now been approved. It was uh, approved by the EU, which was the only thing really holding right. them back. And so they're going to be acquiring DoubleClick that is, of course, one of the infamous trackers of... I'm on, you know, so all, upset about that, yeah. I know. And so I think OpenDNS is still a relatively small group. I think they've got like about a dozen guys. And, you know, I hope they don't like start leveraging their success into you know needing to generate more money and becoming more commercial because that would be a shame let me i'll read the warning it says we're sorry but we can't process your request right now a computer virus or spyware application is sending us automated requests and it appears that your computer network or network has been infected we'll restore your access as quickly as possible try again soon you might want to run a virus checker or spyware remover i've never gotten that one Mine's- Interesting. So this is Google saying you're asking us too many things, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I've never seen that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I, you know, I, that's actually one I've not gotten. I've gotten the one that just says, you know, you're acting like spyware. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It's a very interesting uh, question. I'd like to know more about if our listeners know more. Uh, that would be a good subject for us to talk about in a later show, too. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, we're out of time. I want to encourage everybody to go to your website, 
We're not really out of time. We have as much time as we want. We're out of questions. We filled up their RAM. That's their it. RAM is, is it's, it's, their RAM runneth over. My RAM is full. <laughs> I need a nap. Well, next week, we're going to have fun. We're going to address this issue of, of RAM hacking. All this Ooh, wacky good. spray Freon on your memory chips and, and put them in your refrigerator and, and recover someone's drive and all that kind of that's wacky a, stuff. That's a very, very good topic. That'll be fun. Of course, in the meantime, you can go to grc.com. That's Steve's site. Now, GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, of course, is the home of SpinRight. And if you need SpinRight, uh, you should get it there and do get it because it's the greatest. It's the disk recovery and maintenance utility of all time. You know, just having it here to run, it just gives me such great peace of mind. I also suggest you go there for 16 kilobit versions of the file. Uh, so if you want to, you know, listen to this uh, on a bandwidth challenge system, that's a good way to do it. Save yourself some bandwidth. doesn't sound too bad. We also have transcripts so you can read along uh, as you as you listen and show notes, too. That's all at grc.com. Steve, we'll see you next week. Did um did you run Spinrite at level four on that RAID drive or I, just two? I think two. Should I run four? Yeah, you should. That's probably why something's going on. Two just does a it's a read only pass. If any sector causes trouble, then it drops into level four and and, and massages the sector to figure out what's going on. But it's possible that uh, you could have just run it. Also, you know, uh, it was maybe the drive was less hot than it is right, normally right. when it's been in there. You know, like you 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 shut the machine down, you you recabled it, you ran spin right on it. That would have given the drive a chance to cool off, and so uh, so it might be something thermal also. But give it a give it a shot on level four. It's a weird, you know. Unfortunately, it's such a useless error. It just says there was an error yeah. in, on the BIOS boot up measure uh, uh, message. Just and, do it and then you, everything when, was fine. So I don't know. Yeah, on 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 I your will. way out. I'll do a level on your four. Way, yep. On on your way out the door to uh, where where is it you're going? Uh, Australia. Australia. Yeah. Just <laughs> just fire up Spinrod. It'll be done by the time you get back. <laughs> won't take that. See now people are going to think Spinrod <laughs> takes long. To, it takes you know you do it overnight at worst case, but it, it generally like like three hours yeah, for eighty gigs. Hours. It, you know, I, I read someone's mail uh, er, er, earlier, so you know yeah. three hours for eighty gigs. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.